Can you imagine growing up with the perfect older brother? I don't mean somebody who's good at sports, talented in music, funny personality, but I mean perfect. Not a single flaw, nothing wrong, absolutely perfect. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 records that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son who would be named Jesus. The emphasis on firstborn there indicates to us that likely Mary and Joseph later had other children, not like the first child, not of a virgin birth through the Holy Spirit, but Mary and Joseph having other children. And Matthew thirteen fifty five actually tells us that Jesus had at least four half-brothers. Through Mary, the mother, Joseph being the father, their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, along with other half-sisters. This is mentioned also in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. We suspect that James may have been the oldest of those half-brothers because every time a list is mentioned... James' name is mentioned first. We don't know that they were listed in descending order, but it makes sense to assume that James may have been the next oldest after Jesus. I wish I had the information or perhaps the creativity to really paint for you the scene of what it must have been like growing up in those years leading up to the public ministry if you lived with Jesus. A whole new meaning to WWJD. Imagine working, eating, sleeping, and playing with an older brother named Jesus. You treat him wrong. You get mad at him. You make fun of him. You decide to hit him. But instead of hitting you back, he forgives you. And your anger grows even more intense. You talk back to your parents. You know it's wrong. You do it anyway. You're a sinful person. And then you look over at your brother to see a piercing stare or perhaps words. We have no idea. Whether he said something or whether he didn't, his mere presence would have brought discomfort. What about his brother Simon? Perhaps has Simon told a lie? What would Jesus do? Jesus always told the truth. Think about Joseph. He studied the Torah really hard. He wanted to impress mom and dad, and yet he knew all along that Jesus not only knew the Torah, he knew the answers to what the priests were talking about and could answer their questions and the feeling of inadequacy that would have followed. They knew. They knew the story about the angels proclaiming in the field to the shepherds that, behold, there is a child is born, a Savior, They understood something at least. Could you imagine Jude running around with his other friends and one of his other friends looking at him and saying, your brother can turn water into wine. What can you do? Can you do that? Perhaps in frustration, Jude responding back to him, no, I can't. He's God. (laughs) And we think we have it bad with older siblings who set the example. Except while they were growing up together, I don't know that any of his brothers actually thought Jesus was God. In fact, I don't think they did. I'm sure they knew he was different. I'm sure they knew he was special, but not God. Would you, after all, think that? Think about if your older brother or older sister, perhaps, came home and told you that they were God in the flesh. What would you think? 
Well, I'm the oldest in my family, but I know what my family might think. What has he been smoking? (laughs) Did you fall and hit your head really hard? Do we need to take you to the doctor to see if perhaps there's a concussion or bleeding, something that may be going on? Perhaps society or some of us joking around, being rude, being mean, might say, he's a few bricks shy of a load. You know, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's not the brightest crayon in the box. He's going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. His elevator suddenly stopped going all the way to the top. You know what? He is certifiable. All of these thoughts and more quickly come to mind as to what we would say if a sibling told us, I'm God. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus began his public ministry, Mark writes to us and notes that when he went home, a crowd gathered. We see it in Mark 3, 21. And his family, when they heard it, they went out to seize him. Notice the strong word there. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Perhaps you can relate. They called a family intervention. And yet Jesus kept right on teaching. John writes in chapter 7 about an interesting family interaction when at the feast of booths, his brothers told him, and they said to him in John 7, verse 2 and following, his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he is to be known openly. In other words, they are calling Jesus out and they're saying, you claim to be God? Go to the big city then. You just go right ahead. The intervention's not working. You go do what you think you're going to go do, and let's see how it turns out for you. We're tired of talking to you about it. You go show yourself. Lest we think that this was brotherly encouragement to to send him from the small town to the big town to hit the big time, John adds in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Do you see the tension that would have existed when not even his own brothers believed he was Jesus? Matthew 12, 46 through 50 shows the family as they came and they showed up and they wanted to speak to him. And Jesus responds that those who do the will of his father, those are his true brothers, his true sisters, his true family. John then records at the crucifixion in chapter 19. He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. We don't know if Jesus' brothers were there at the crucifixion, but this is a very odd exchange. If Jesus' brothers were there, if James is standing right there, why would Jesus look to Mary, his mother, and look to John, the beloved disciple, and say, John, you take care of my mother. She's now your mother, and him taking her home at that point. We can only estimate that his brothers were not there. Perhaps they feared for their own life, crucifixion by association. Perhaps you can identify this morning with James. Perhaps you grew up in a family that was very religious. You have a mom, you have a dad, perhaps you have an older sibling who set the gold standard for righteous living. You look around and you think to yourself, I can't meet that standard. I can't measure up to the standard that's being set even in my own house. And perhaps that has turned you off to religion. It has turned you off to some degree seeking or pursuing God for your own self. It's turned you off to, to where you are just apathetic. You are just there. You don't really pursue God for your own faith. You just happen to live in an environment that has pushed you this direction. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning. And you've looked at the claims of Jesus and what we see about James and the family resonates with you before the resurrection. 
You think to yourself, all right, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, I want to see something. Go to the big city. Let's see if you're a hit. Show me a sign. I want a sign in my life if you're real, Jesus. I want you to write something in the clouds. I want you to send me a text message. I want you to do some miracle or confirm my fleece. I want you to do something for me, Jesus, if you're real. Show me the big time. Perhaps you relate. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning, and after going through all of Fall Bible Conference and getting started and seeing how loud and crazy we can sing for Jesus and His honor and His glory, you're sitting here thinking, you people are out of your mind. You're certifiable. Perhaps you're sitting in the balcony, in the back row, because there no RA or RD will see that you have your laptop out and you're searching Facebook or tweeting or on Yik Yak right now saying, he's certifiable. And you think nobody knows that that's the reason you sit in the back row of the balcony. Perhaps you think we're crazy. Perhaps you're like James, and if the crucifixion occurred in your hometown, and if the crucifixion included a family member of your, your family, you are so apathetic at this point, it's your senior year, and you have senioritis, and you have so disengaged that you wouldn't even show up for the crucifixion. You wouldn't be there. You would just be completely disengaged. But you know, that's part of what makes this book so special. This book is written by James. It's written by a very person who was the half-brother of Jesus, the Lord. No one knows him better. With James, you have an eyewitness of all eyewitnesses. With James, you have someone that knows how Jesus ate his food. Was he a clean eater? Was he a sloppy eater? Did he have to wipe his mouth afterwards? Did he not? Did he keep his food separated on the plate or did he allow it to touch so that it mixed together? All of our little intricacies that we often don't know except about our closest friends, we know that about our family members. The holy ones like me keep their food separated. The ones that mix them together like my brother do other things and so we won't talk about that. But... He knows how he brushed his teeth. I don't know how they brushed their teeth. James knows his hygiene, his habits. Did he go to bed early? Did he go to bed late? James, the half-brother of Jesus, the skeptic before the resurrection, rejected Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus, but then something happened. Our author is recorded in Acts 1.14. He is recorded as being present in the upper room with Mary and the brothers of Christ. He is recorded by Acts chapter 15 as being very prominent in the Jerusalem council. It's even recorded in Acts chapter 12 verse 17 that when Peter got out of jail, Peter said to them, tell these things to James. Now, why would Peter tell them, go tell James explicitly about what happened to me and being rescued from jail. It's because James had become a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem. What happened here? How did this take place? We read the words that James wrote in that decisive Jerusalem council in verses 19 through 21 of Acts chapter 15. And in that chapter, James talks about not troubling the Gentiles with the laws other than abstaining from the things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, or what has been strangled from blood. Now that's important. We take note that James did not want to put legalism onto the Gentiles as we read through the book of James and study it this coming year. 
Acts 21, 18 records Paul, when he went on a visit, specifically calls out that he went to James. And in Galatians 2, 9, Paul calls James a pillar of the church. James changed. Something happened. The writer of the book of Jude considered James so prominent, he introduces himself as the brother of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James. James is all of a sudden a person of importance. What's the difference? Well, the difference then and the difference now. The difference at that point and the difference for you and for me is the resurrected Christ. Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, what we have often skipped over as we read this, is that he appeared to James and to all the apostles. I think it's important that Paul notes James in particular because they understood the difficulty of the brothers and the family before the resurrection and after the resurrection. It makes a difference for you and me as well if we have encountered the resurrected Christ in our own lives. We have no way to know how much James knew about the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, but we do know the resurrection made all the difference in the world. You see, in the book of James, we have not just an eyewitness to Jesus and his early life who lived with him, but we have an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. We have an eyewitness to Jesus after he got up out of the grave, after he was resurrected and visible. James. History records him as James the Just or James the Righteous. There are even some legends that developed about James that are kind of hard to believe, but when you read through church history, you take some of it with a grain of salt, and on some of these historical accounts, they say that his knees look like camel's knees because of the amount of time he spent on his knees in prayer. Those legendary accounts also describe in great detail the story of James' death in A.D. 62. The scribes and the Pharisees came to James. They knew him as James the Just, an important person. They talked to him about uh, talking to the people, the followers, and telling them that Jesus really didn't rise from the grave. He, He wasn't really sitting at the right hand of the Father. And they took him up to the temple, James the Just, up to a high level of the temple so that people would be able to see him and be able to hear James the Just. And when they asked him the questions, James at that point, he stood firm in his faith. He remained steadfast. He affirmed that Jesus was the Christ and he was sitting at the right hand of God. The scribes and Pharisees in their anger then threw James off of the temple. He crashed to the ground, not yet dead. Those around him began to pick up stones and throw the stones at James as he lay there in excruciating pain. According to the record, James prayed for them. I entreat thee, Lord God, our Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. One of the priests standing by cried out saying, stop what you are doing. The just one prays for you. Another took a club and hit James in the head so that he died a martyr's death. We may never know the complete accuracy of those accounts, but we reasonably can know that James died in AD 62 after being thrown off the temple. So as we walk through this book, you catch a flavor of the writer who has written this general epistle for us. He tells us to remain steadfast. He did so until death. He tells us that we should pray. He did so until some would say his knees were like the knees of camels. He tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and he was known as James the Just or James the Righteous. We hear from an eyewitness of Jesus growing up and from an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. 
James most likely wrote this general epistle in the mid-40s. He died in AD 62. The Jerusalem Council is from AD 48 to 49, which indicates it was likely before that because it contains no mention of that very important, prominent Jerusalem Council. So sometime before 48, 49 AD, this book would have been written. So turn with me now to the book of James. Today we look at one verse, James chapter 1. James chapter 1 says this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, we've already met him, I have already introduced you to him, but perhaps you're thinking, is James the half-brother of Christ the only option for the author of this book? Well, no. In fact, there are four men named James that we see, at least four men named James we see in the New Testament. I've got them for you on the screen. You have James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. We meet them first in Matthew 4.21. However, we see and we know in Acts 12.2 that Herod had killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's in AD 44, much too early for him to have been the author of this particular book. We see also James, the son of Alphaeus, in Matthew 10, 3. We learn that James, the son of Alphaeus, was a disciple of Christ, but Scripture or history records very little else about him. This may also be the person who's known as James the Less or James the Younger, or some refer to him as James the Lesser, in contrast to James the Greater, who was the first mentioned on the screen for you. We also see James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, and all throughout Scripture, anytime this Judas is mentioned, they clarify, not the one that betrayed Christ, it's not Iscariot, it's another Judas. I would want that clarification inserted in the scripture if I were his father as well. James, the father of Judas, not the bad one, a good one. Mentioned in Luke 6, 16, Acts 1, 12, we know very little about him. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus and brother of Jude. Of these men mentioned, I believe that only James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church is a plausible choice. The author was so well known that in the introduction in verse one of chapter one, he says to you, I'm James. So apparently he thought people would know or understand the connection to Christ, understand who he was in such a way that he needed no further explanation to clarify who he was with one little disclaimer that I'll get to in a moment. Furthermore, Origen, Eusebius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, and Augustine, and many other of the early church fathers affirm that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the one who authored this particular letter. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how James introduced himself to us. Notice what he thought was most important. I've told you about him. Think about what James could have put on his Facebook profile. Think about what James could have put on his resume as his descriptor. Think about how James could have introduced himself as a professional on LinkedIn. If he had gone to our career services office, they would have wisely counseled him as an upcoming senior to make sure his LinkedIn account was up to date with good, valid information. And perhaps he would have said, I am James. My references call me James the Just. Or James the righteous. I am born from the sacred womb. The most blessed woman to have ever lived. Mary, the mother of God. 
I'm the most successful church planter in church history. Leader of the church at Jerusalem. My words calmed one of the greatest divisions at the Jerusalem Council. Oh, and not to mention, I have a brother. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is God. That's right, I'm the half-brother of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. There's my trump card, game over, drop the mic, and walk off the stage. Think about what he could have said to us. And yet, what does he say to us? There's great wisdom for us and application for us when we look and see what James says to us. He calls himself a servant. The word he uses here for servant is actually doulos in the Greek. It means servant, but it also means slave. Here's a quote out of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It says this, quote, Hence we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it. It's which he has to perform whether he likes it or doesn't like it because he is subject as a slave to an alien will to the will of his owner. Think about what comes with this word doulos. He is a slave. And doulos on one side indicates the total dependence, which compares to the total authority of lordship on the other side. He is a doulos. He is a slave. He is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a servant in complete service to the authority who has complete authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does James want us to know about himself? But that he is a servant. He is a slave to the most high God. He doesn't give us all of the impressive stats accompanying his first birth. He rather gives us the servant status of his second birth. What's important about James is he is a servant of God. The words of Matthew 20, 28 come to mind, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. It reminds all of us that no matter our position, no matter what letters may ride behind our name, that we are servants of the Most High God. We are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ if we have been born again. If you're sitting here this morning and perhaps you think highly of yourself, perhaps day one went really well. Perhaps day two went even better and you think, I've got this college thing down. This is easy. And prideful arrogance begins to creep in. I would encourage you to consider the seriousness of your rebellion against King Jesus. If you sit here this morning with pride in your intelligence, your possessions, your giftedness, then I don't think you have considered the status before the giver of all of those gifts and all that is in life. If you sit here this morning in arrogance because you are special, Because you have a gift that nobody else has, there is something that you can do better than everybody else, then I don't know that you've recognized your wicked condition before a holy and righteous God to understand that except from the grace of God, except from the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are all hopeless sinners bound for an eternal destiny in hell. There's only one that's worthy of praise. There is only one that's worthy of boasting, and that one is God alone. Jesus Christ alone. James, a servant, a slave, a doulos to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ with all authority, writes. He writes 
to the 12 tribes in dispersion. We look at this. We understand his meaning is the 12 tribes is the Jewish nation. The word dispersion, which identifies the Jews living outside of Palestine. These Jews had been scattered during the first time of persecution written about in Acts 8, verses 1 and verse 4. Later in this text, James uses the Hebrew reference synagogue for assembly. Again, this indicates he's writing to a Jewish audience, but we understand that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, its inclusion in the canonization process, the text of Scripture, that what he wrote as a general epistle, a general letter to be circulated among a Jewish audience also holds great value for you and me today. These words were meant for us. These words have impact for us. He says to them, James, a servant, a doulos, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Greetings. It's a simple word. But we should take note that it does not stand alone in any other New Testament letter. Only in this one. Some would find it odd that he doesn't add the typical Jewish salutation, peace, or salome in his greeting. What James may be up to here is playing on words. The word greeting in the Greek has a similar word form to it as the word joy that we encounter in verse 2. So perhaps there's a play on words. So here we see the first verse of the book of James. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Greetings. So in the time that remains today, let me provide you with a brief overview of this book as we understand who our author is, who our context is, we understand who he's writing to, and so let me start out by saying this to you. I can understand why some people don't like this book. The words Jesus and Christ appear only twice in the book. It appears in verse 1, appears in verse 2. And then there's so little mention of Jesus that there's also little mention of the resurrection. And instead, we find a linear writing style that contains over 50 imperatives, depending on which commentary you read, between 54 or 58 imperatives, commands, and 108 verses. Think about a command for you to do something, one out of every two verses. You are being ordered or commanded to do this or to do that. James Punchy straightforward style doesn't sit well with our culture of Disney magic and cotton candy appetites. We don't like to be told what to do. We initially resist being told what to do. And yet here's a book that has over 50 commands or imperatives to us in 108 verses. James never heard of political correctness. Perhaps the most reasonable objection to this book comes from the fact that some see a contrast or a contradiction between James and Paul. You know that Paul, writing in Romans 3.28, says that, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, Paul writes to us and he tells us, it's by grace you've been saved, it's not of works, it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not of the result of works, lest anyone should boast. And then we come to the book of James, and in chapter 2, verse 24, we see, he says this, and I'm quoting here, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and everybody goes, rut shaggy. What are we going to do with that one? We'll get there. We'll have fun that particular day in chapel as we look at that, and we talk about how to reconcile those positions 
understanding that what James is really saying is he's saying that genuine saving faith, not the fact that the demons believe and tremble, but genuine saving faith leads to good works following your genuine belief in Christ. He asks us multiple times to consider ourselves to make sure we're not deceived. Deceptive faith has no life change. If you claim to have faith in Christ and nothing has ever changed in your life, there are no new actions. There is no new fruit eventually being produced. You're not abiding in the vine, and there is nothing there that is of genuine faith. Do not be deceived. Genuine faith produces fruit over time. We are saved, as Paul and James would hold, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, by a genuine faith that produces the fruit of Christian words and actions. Paul focuses on initial belief. James focuses on the works which follow from genuine faith, but more on that later. We'll walk through it. But perhaps this is the reason that none other than Martin Luther himself called this a right strawy epistle. He didn't have much use for the book of James. Luther, who we know, was coming out of a Catholic system that was focused on a works-based salvation of grace being infused through various things that you did, had very little appreciation for James and his emphasis on his imperatives of doing rather than by grace through faith alone. In the book of James, we're going to see several recurring themes. Some of these themes will pop up. We'll address them. We'll address them again later. You'll see faith and works. You're going to see trials and temptations all throughout. You're going to see wisdom. You're going to see riches and poverty. This book serves as something as a Proverbs of the New Testament, perhaps an exposition on the Sermon of the Mount, perhaps James, even though he may not have been there, had heard Jesus talk about these things so much that he uses very similar concepts, very similar wording to what was used in the Sermon on the Mount. It also references back to Leviticus 19 many different times. James wants us to live out our faith in actions and words that match who we say we are as believers in Christ. In other words, the words said must match the life led. That's what James is after. You claim to be a Christian? Those words said much match the life that is led. He has no patience for the double-minded. You will see that. He does not like the spiritual adulterer who spews evil right alongside good. He challenges us to examine our faith to see if we are deceived. He uses the term brother 17 different times in these 108 verses. Often it's when he starts a new thought and it signals the transition of one pericope to another pericope, one unit of thought to another unit of thought. But more significantly for us, what it's going to do is highlight when he gets really mad at somebody, particularly in James chapter 4, 4, where instead of saying brothers, he says, quote, you adulterous people, end quote. Well, we take note then. He goes from calling him brothers or beloved or people that he cares about to you adulterous people. Well, something serious has happened. James sets a really high bar for Christian living. His imperatives demand godliness. The words of this book tells us that we should have actions that accompany who we say we are. He uses illustrations from nature, so that'll be fun. Those imperatives gives us action items and applications, so we'll have a good time with the application too. And it's going to challenge us from freshmen who just walked on campus 11 days ago to senior faculty member. Because in the book of James, none of us can live up to all of the expectations that he writes for us. Yet he will do so in such vivid color and HD imagery that our lives will change as our words and actions come into submission to Christ. So let me say this. And let me say that it's my hope 
that throughout this course of this year, I will repeatedly refer back to grace. Because if you just look at James and the 50 plus imperatives and create a checklist of you have to do this and do this and do this and do this to please God, then the weight of James will crush you without the grace of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. We live with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, warring against this sinful nature that resides with us also. And we are going to stumble and fall until one day when we are glorified and there with Jesus Christ in heaven. And so recognize that through all of these imperatives, it's the grace of the gospel, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to be able to live the life that is put before us. I've titled this series, Steadfast Faith for Trying Times. You'll see this slide at every chapel message that I preach through the book of James. You'll see the chapel set reminding us about steadfast. You'll notice we've chosen intentionally a still theme with rivets because steadfastness often indicates a still type structure that will stand against whatever may come its way. Steadfast is the word that I've chosen. In the ESV, it appears five times. Other translations use other words, but in the ESV, you would find it in James 1, 3, 1, 4, 1, 12, and then twice in chapter 5, verse 11. You'll see that in other translations, it could be listed as patience, endurance, or perseverance. Steadfast, hupomone in the Greek, literally refers to the steadfast endurance of a Christian under difficulties and tests of the present evil age. We can, because of faith, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, stand steadfast no matter what this life sends our way. We can remain steadfast in Christ. We endure evil. We courageously resist hostile attack while holding firm to our faith. In the first chapter, James, as we've already seen in verse one, sets the scene when he mentions the dispersion the persecution that has taken place. And later, he's going to come right back in that with verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. And then in verse 12, as he sets the theme for the entire book, and he says to us in these verses, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll talk about this in our next message. But we understand that he doesn't say if you meet trials. He says when you meet those trials of various kinds, different trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He comes back, he hits this again in verse 12, and that'll be where we end our next message, well, 2 through 12. And he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. At the end of the book, he comes back to the theme in chapter five, verse 11. And he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Throughout the course of this year, I'll try to use James imagery to pull up some good illustrations to try to help make it come alive with application for you. We'll have the set to remind you of the still as it stands firm. We'll have the words to remind us that what we wanna do at the end of this is learn how to be steadfast through all of those trials. You may not go through trials while you're here at Cedarville, although some will, but you will go through trials after you leave here and we want you to be equipped. We want us all to be equipped to remain steadfast as we go through those trials. Throughout the year, I'll come back to steadfast. I'm going to come back to something else too. There's something else I learned a little bit about this summer. 
Metamorphosis is a concept that's common in biology. You think about it, you understand that caterpillars become butterflies, that tadpoles become frogs. It happens with rocks too. How many of you knew that a rock could metamorphosize into something else? All of our geology majors have raised their hands in the room. Very few other people have done so. The ignatius or sedimentary rock which starts out the process often doesn't resemble the metamorphic rock that's at the end of the process. There's an incredible change that takes place. In fact, I have one of them for you. This is a metamorphic rock. You can see in this metamorphic rock shiny little things. Are they shining there? Yeah, you see those? Little crystals. This rock or one like it, or several like it, will be here in chapel, on stage, around campus, in various locations, so that as you see them, it'll cause you to spark in your mind. What happens to these rocks when they're in the igneous or sedimentary state is that heat and pressure causes the rocks to change. As the pressure and as this heat increases, the original crystals in the rock become unstable. When they become unstable, they morph into crystals that are more stable under the increased pressure and increased heat. These new minerals then grow perpendicular to the pressure. So if the pressure is coming in this way, they're going to grow this way. Those crystals begin to grow. And the longer the pressure is, the longer they begin to grow until you can actually see them with the naked eye. They respond to the increased heat and temperature and pressure of trials that come against them. These changes take place while it's still a rock. Before it is melted, if it melts, it's no longer a metamorphic rock. The longer the metamorphism, the larger the minerals. This concept can be seen for us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says we're not to be conformed to the world. We're not to be like Plato that takes its shape, but we are to be transformed. We are to be metamorphosized into something that is different by the renewing of our minds. This concept recurs in the book of James when these trials face us. And as these trials face us, steadfastness then is what results from these trials. And we want our steadfastness to be complete. We want our faith to engage in these trials and come through the other side of these trials so that our faith is then morphed into something that is stronger, something that is greater. Those trials test our faith. Those trials test our faith so that it may transform our faith. Like this rock, When the heat and the pressure comes in trials, we remain steadfast, knowing that trials produce spiritual growth in our faith. James encourages us to take joy in this. How do you take joy in trials? It's not because it's fun when you're going through the trials, but it's because you know in your mind that those trials are going to produce a steadfastness in your faith, and your faith is going to be firm when you come out the other side. In fact, your faith, according to James, will be complete, lacking nothing. So the next time you see this rock, or the next time you see a rock that looks like it, let it bring to mind to you the heat and the pressures of the trials of life that come your way will change you. But if you remain steadfast, they might just morph your faith into something that is complete, lacking nothing, something beautiful, a crown of life to be laid at the feet of Jesus. This year, we're going to look at the book of James. We're going to have a lot of fun as we seek to be steadfast in our faith and as we learn about steadfast faith for trying times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you 
that you have given us a revelation of who you are so that we can learn more about you. And Lord, that you have told us in your word what we should do and how we should live so that we will know how to behave in this world. God, we confess to you that we too are just servants, bond servants, slaves of you, Lord. We want to live a life that glorifies you, a life that has actions and words that are consistent with who we are as Christians in Christ. Lord, as we go through trials and as we have friends that we know even right now and faculty members and students and staff that are going through trials, we pray that, Lord, these trials would help their faith to be steadfast, to be complete so that they would receive the crown of joy to lay at your feet. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us for whatever trials may come our way, so that we too may glorify you in word and in deed, and live a life worthy of the calling that you have upon us. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.